Hey, we're glad that you're here this morning. My name is Steve. I am one of the elders here at the church. Uh, so for those of you visiting, welcome, welcome this morning. I um, was part of the group. There's a, just a handful of us left that were here from uh, day one when we started Echo. And when we started this church 11 years ago, um, our desire was to reach out uh, to a sometimes dark city. And we've uh, been at this, and, but we haven't deviated from some of the stuff uh, that we've done over the years. And part of that is like our worship. I, our worship that we do is basically the same as we've done for 11 years. Uh, what we do is we gather, we sing, uh, we pray. We, and this time that is very deliberate is that we study through the scriptures and what we tend to do is to look at just one book of the Bible each week and then even our, actually one book of the Bible for a few months. And then each week we hone on uh, specific parts of that book. And it, it takes some time, like we've kind of ramped it up, but we spend like a, a, an entire year in the book of Exodus one year just looking through that. And the reason that we do that is because we're very uh, dedicated to the word of God. We believe that churches ought to be moved by what God has said in the past and how that becomes relevant to our lives. And right now we're in the midst of our study on the book of Ephesians. And as we've talked about the book of Ephesians here for the past few weeks, and if you're really that interested, God bless you for your geekery. You can go online and listen to the previous messages and what we've talked about. But we talked about this book. It's a small book in the New Testament. So this was written after Jesus lived and by his earliest followers who were going out and trying to tell people about him and who he was. When we talk about this letter to a, uh, a gathering of people at Ephesus, it's important to understand who they are because many of us sometimes we open the Bible and we just say, you know, there's a bunch of words there and it's all supposed to be spiritual aspects to our lives. But what we like to do is go in and mine a little deeper to understand that better. In the Mediterranean world, which we know is one of the most influential geographic locations for thousands of years, in this area which is modern-day Turkey, uh, just to the east of the Aegean Sea here on the coast, was this little port city of Ephesus. And during those years following Jesus' death, as his followers went all out to tell people about this great news that Jesus was truly sent by God to change their lives, churches sprang up everywhere. And there was a small church that sprang up in Ephesus. And I say this all the time because we get this concept of like a building like this as a church. And it was these massive gatherings of people. But the reality is, in these early years, when the Apostle Paul the one who writes the book of Ephesians is talking to these believers. It was probably a gathering not much bigger than what we have today. It was small. It was intentional. And they had gathered for the sole purpose of just praising Jesus. And what Paul was trying to do was to speak to the realities of what it meant to be followers of Jesus in this broad city. And for you and I to put this uh, in context, and again, a little geekery, but this is a map imposed on the modern site of Ephesus to show all the buildings and structures that existed in that day. It was a burgeoning city. There was people all over, and even among tens of thousands of people, there was just a small handful of people who followed Jesus. And those people didn't all come out of the same club and mold. The reality was, it was a very diverse gathering of believers. 
And what Paul knew through the Holy Spirit, and it's something that we understand today, is that when you bring together a lot of different people from different perspectives, it's tough to get them to agree on anything. And that's why we've said that the theme of this book is one of mosaic. Because what is a mosaic? A bunch of small individual pieces that are all fit together to form one beautiful painting. And that is what God wants his body of believers to be. A bunch of different people that come together in a shared concept of goodness for the kingdom of God to do some amazing things. So we're in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in chapter 5. If you uh, have your Googles and internets on your smartphone, you can look up Ephesians 5 and find it there. We have also have these nifty things called books. In your pew, there might be a Bible there, and the blue Bible's there. I believe where we're at today is page 829 for you to look at. But this is what's interesting um, within this study, because there today you've seen a few of our people in the crowd with some green t-shirts on. Today, they are uh, from a ministry called Love Boldly. I was introduced to them through my friend Kevin. Kevin and I um, are friends. We've uh, served churches together. Um, he, he, a great man that I know and consider him, and he's been helping out in this ministry. And for those Love Boldly folk here today, we, we're, we're grateful that you're here with us. And um, we're glad that you're in their ministry. And their ministry is... Uh, very much in line with what we are talking about here in the book of Ephesus because a large community of people who feel that they have no chance to be engrafted into the family of God are people in the LGBTQ community because they've often been greeted by people of faith with hatred and disdain and disgust. And that's exactly the thing that Paul's trying to reach out today. Now, this is what's interesting, though, when we bring all this together. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, and this text, by the way, for those of you visiting, and Dylan can attest to this, is that we've plot out a long time in advance what we're going to talk about because we try to do advanced planning because we're just horrible improvisers. And this is a text that we picked almost a year ago to preach on this day, not knowing then that this group would be here. And then you see nestled in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 5, the verse, but among you, but there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of impurity of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And the very thing that the folk here at Love Boldly are trying to minister to is places where verses like this in the Bible are taken piecemeal, hung out to dry individually, and trying to say there is an overriding sexual ethic which is the most important issue for the followers of God. Now, I can't lie today. It's not that we, we go to the other extreme sometimes and say, well, then God doesn't care about it at all. No, that's not what we're saying. But the problem is within our current context that we have is that people don't look at the fullness of the message of what was happening at the time. So for us to better understand something like this, we have to look into everything that else is here in the text. And what that does today is it encounters us with two key questions. That no matter what part you are in the mosaic, no matter how diverse you are, even if you're like, I'm not even a piece of this mosaic, I don't want to be part of what's glued together, you still have to come to grips with two questions that Paul will deal with here in Ephesians chapter 5. And the first question is, who is God and the second question, what does God ask of me? What does God want from me? So if you look in the Bible here, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Sometimes I have people in the um, crowd read this out, but I'm going to 
for sake of time and organization, read this aloud together. So it's up here on the screen. It's in your Bible. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 5. We read, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Throughout most of the history of Echo Church, I've been bivocational, and that's taken me into contact with different business dealings. And within uh, um, sales, if you've ever been involved in sales or maybe even a negotiation, there's a tact, a psychological tact that is often practiced called mirroring. I'm not sure if you're familiar with mirroring, but what that's supposed to do is as a way to build empathy between the person across the table, you try to mimic what they're doing, not in a mocking way, but in such a way so that they feel that you are on the same wavelength as them, right? So in in rooms, when I'm sitting across the table from somebody and I have to negotiate or, 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 or talk with them, if their hands are just like this, I'll try to do the same thing every once in a while. I'll try to switch with this, not automatically and not quickly, but subtly to try to do this. If they open their hands up, I try try to do similar as well. And one of the tacks that you're supposed to do is that it really helps in mirroring to restate some of the concepts that they have stated previously so that they get the idea of, number one, this person has heard me, and also that they think this person thinks just like me and I love them. See, this is what you came for Jesus, but you get like professional tactics as well. Write that stuff down, yo. But here's one of the interesting things here is that you and I are told by the Apostle Paul that we are supposed to mirror God, that we are supposed to emulate him. And friends, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? For you and I to live lives just like God. I get the idea if I'm supposed to imitate somebody, if I'm supposed to imitate some sort of spiritual giant or a Christian leader or, you know, maybe even some politician if you're deranged. We're supposed to want to be like other people, but for you and I to come back and understand what it means to imitate God, that is in insane but there's something within imitation that happens especially and i love how paul says this what is the posture that we do it as dearly loved children friends you are a child of god and one thing about children that you see and this is one of the reasons that some of us have wonderful relationships with our parents and others of us have so much baggage it can't even come here but one of the reasons breaks down is that we have this longing sometimes to be like our parents right And some of us today, even as adults, are still chasing the ghosts of affirmation from our parents. That you're pushing for success for no other reason because you want that to happen. And friends, I think one of the reasons why is because there's an idealized version of this that is hardwired into our relationship with God. Unfortunately, the only thing I can think about when I think about this is Jaws. I know that might be a deviation because I'm not talking about a man-eating shark actually ripping somebody to shreds but there's a touching scene in the book of jaws that actually sets everything up right do you know what i'm talking about anybody seen jaws there's the point where uh they're at the table and um and i i did not do my research and i'm brain farting right here because i can't remember you know the sheriff right is there and there's the point where he's bearing all the responsibility of this town going crazy because of the shark and he's just at the table and it's like his hands are on his his forehead and then all of a sudden his kids at the table and he does the same thing right and they do this mimicry game like it was such a touching scene actually it was that scene that added the humanity that made us actually care when the shark started randomly eating other people right and by the way there's also the deviation anything after jaws one is just horrible amen right 
so I think there was a point in Jaws 3D, I'm pretty sure it was 3D, which just that concept was horrible, where they tried to redo the phrase with like, you know, his son, or maybe it was four, I don't know. You see, the idea that there's that many Jaws is, is, is horrible, but they tried to set up the same thing, but it wasn't as touching. But just getting back to that main scene is that we're, we, we have this desire to imitate, especially parents and children. And that's something that Paul wants us to see right here. What does it mean for you and I to imitate God? We find out the answer in verse 2, right? Very simply, who is God? Who is he? This is what he does. God is the one who walks in the way of love. God walks in the way of love. Think about that. If you have church baggage, it's one of the things that love boldly tries to speak to. And many of us have baggage. Is so many times we hear messages of, uh, of God and who he is. And does it often lead with love? Does it talk about who he is in that aspect? This doesn't mean then, friends, that we disqualify everything else in here, right? It's not that we pick and choose and just say love is the only thing. No, it's not the only thing that God embodies, but God is love. And this is what Paul talks about here. How was this best exemplified? It was best exemplified in the key moment of Christian belief, which is the cross, Right? And that's what Paul writes right here. Is that God loved us so much that he went to the cross. He himself, God embodied, went to the cross to die for you and me. The creator of the world gave up all just for us. The apostle Paul later writes in Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, who is God? Our God is a God that loves bigger than you have any idea our God loves. Let's keep reading. Now, we're going to skip down here. And again, I can go through all these verses, but this is why my church hates me. Because they're like, look, we never beat the Baptist to lunch, so just hang in. So we're going to skip some. If you feel like I'm shortchanging you, we can have a whole other hour later at some other time. But let's go to verses 8 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 5. I might turn around and read it because I had to fit it on multiple slides. For you were once in darkness, but now you are in our light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And that's why it said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, those people who usually struggle with faith and Christianity struggle with this even as a metaphor, the metaphor of light versus darkness. Because there's a bifurcation there, a separation that plays out really easily as you're looking at it, right? Light, darkness, good, bad, God, Satan, or whatever you want to use on the other end of it, right? There's that separation. And whereas old school people had a really easy time functioning and fastening themselves to a concept of light and dark, we moderns, especially those of us who have lived in an era of the digital age, have a problem trying to see how that fits into a modern worldview. So instead of actually grappling with it as a concept, we just chuck it and just say there's got to be a different way. Okay? So just because we live in a more complex world doesn't mean that this is not apt. Let me just, even if, for example, just as a way to do this, some of you are visiting today. Our friend Daniel is here today, and Daniel's sitting in the back, and Daniel, you don't want to, you know, Daniel's going to stand up because I'm going to have Daniel stand up. And if you're in an echo church, you know of Daniel because Daniel was part of our church. 
uh, for years as he was studying here in our seminary because he went all the way back to his native home in Myanmar in the middle of the country where he serves as one of the most influential Christian leaders in the entire country of Myanmar. The government of Myanmar has uh, different denominational heads that they make sure because it's not quite a free country as ours. And in that country, Daniel is on a small group of people that are, that are the most important Christian leaders in Myanmar, which is funny, but this dude can slip right in our church and none of us know. In Myanmar, he's kind of a big deal. Okay. In America, none of us are, so it doesn't matter. Okay, Daniel is here because the moving of the Holy Spirit, because today, because his son Gideon was in Myanmar, and because they don't have the technology that we do, their health services were not nearly as robust, and they could not figure out what was ailing Daniel's son Gideon. And it came to the point where they believed that his son might even die. And what was very interesting is that we support him. Kelly is like the supporting agent. Kelly got us all involved, but there's other people on the committee. And through just a chain of emails talking about Gideon, some people we knew said, why can't we get him to Cincinnati Children's? Because they're one of the best medical facilities in the world. Let's bring them over here so that he can have good medical care. And by the way, that was such a long shot of long shots. You might be like, oh, a piece of cake. I'm telling you, friends, you're talking visas between multiple countries and getting this done. And the idea that we could get him over here and have it funded was ridiculously you know, in any other way, it would have been impossible. But I believe the Lord opened up opportunities. Now, this is a reality, though. That never exists if we don't live in a digital technological age where somebody in India had a connection with somebody in Cincinnati through another mission organization so that we could constantly communicate with Daniel all the way in a third world country and have all this work up so that his son's life is good. And, and by the way, Gideon's running back here someplace. You're, you'll see him running around and he looks healthy. He just had a 12-hour surgery like three weeks ago. Okay, so... Bringing him here is this thing. Why do I just... Well, part of this is because I always try to shoehorn what I want to talk about where I want to. So I wanted to tell that story. But how does that fit into this? This is what we need to understand. Is that we live in a very complex world now, right? We live in a world where there once was huge separation between what it meant to live in the United States and to have interactions overseas. Do you know what's funny? Is that Daniel is in country and has a cell phone that has no coverage. And we can Facebook message. So before I left to pick him up, I was like, hey, Daniel, I'm coming. Boom, right back. Okay, I'll be waiting for you. Like, we Facebooked the crap out of this thing, all right? Like, think about that. The thing is, with all these complexities, and you know it right now, because some of you have been sitting here in church and your phone has vibrated and somebody at work has beckoned you to do something now for work, right? We have a complex world to where it doesn't register this. Our ancestors, forefathers, when they said, hey, listen, there's basically just two realities of life. There's light and dark. It probably made sense to them, but... You know, they probably had nothing by which to question it. The thing that you and I have now is access to untethered information so that we are the most powerful people who have ever walked the face of the earth. So feel good about yourself. Is it not the truth? You Really, coming to this week, and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for on Tuesday. I, I, I don't even want to touch that, but think about this. Why are you so conflicted about who to vote for? Because we have so much information about both candidates that we see every aspect of who they are. And that's why politics will be completely changed moving forward. Because there's nothing you have ever done, and God bless you millennials, you've been Facebooking, Snapchatting, well that's why you Snapchat, but then Instagramming, tweeting, all this stuff. There's going to be so much baggage on you, none of you could be president. <laughs> right? Because that is the complexity of the world. So then we stop and we say, 
how does light and darkness fit into it? And friends, that is the thing that has not changed. It doesn't then mean the complex world we live in completely evaporates the bifurcated aspects of living in light and darkness. This is what changes about it. We, and it's actually not changed, but our perception I need to understand We are not the protectors of light and darkness. Do you understand that? That is why love boldly has to exist. Because many of you view themselves in Christianity as the protectors of light and darkness. That's not your job is to protect light and darkness. What is your job? To live in the light and therefore deny the darkness. Does that make sense? So don't get on your high horse trying to look at all these other people and judging them for that. It does not mean then that God does not have expectations. We're going to get back to this. It doesn't mean then that there's aspect to us. But what this means for you is why can't you focus on the true living in the light? What does that say here in verse, verse 10? What is the fruit of the light? Goodness, righteousness, truth. Can you imagine that if we just spent the best part of our time trying to live our lives in those things? Friends, I'm a man of God, but I'm an ass. And the reason I say that is because I hope that opens the door for you to admit it yourself. You might follow Jesus and be a good person, but really, you're an ass too. How do you engage in life like that? I need to understand that it's not about anything but me focusing on God. One more thing before we move on because I think this is important here because I don't want to get into the weeds, but then it's this concept of sin because what some people then do to lighten this message to try to say, no, we have to walk in the love of God and make it all this is they try to say then that a concept of sin doesn't even exist. And friends, if you're trying to read through the Bible in a way such to do so, you might as well throw everything out the window because the concept of sin exists too. Okay, and and by the way, when we get to this point, it's just as a point of logical argument. If we're like, okay, if there's really no sin and evil, explain away the Nazis. Like, no, they were just misunderstood, right? It doesn't work out that way. Okay, so there is light and darkness. What's important then is how you and I live. What is that importance? The thing that we ask, what's the second question? What does God ask from us? And that's what Paul attempts to answer in verses 15 through 17 right here that we can look as we conclude be very careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the lord's will is i can't see verse 15 and not think hey just live wise right don't be stupid i was thinking of homer this week you know his song i am smart i am smart smrt i mean smart that's anyone Okay, at least I got somebody there who was like, this was an apt illustration. Woohoo. Okay. We're asked then, as part of what God is asking us, to live wise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is not knowledge, so you can't just Google it and get it, right? You can get a lot of stuff from the interwebs, but wisdom is not one of them. Wisdom is applied implied knowledge, right? So we figure out what to believe and then are able to act that out. I've met some of the most brilliant people in the world who are unable to actually live out what they believe. That's horrible. But it's okay. I do the same thing too. We all do it. But our aim ought to be living as wise. I love this. Why? Because our call is to make the most of every opportunity. I so wanted to go all eight mile M&M up on this joint this morning because there is a thing is that you have to lose yourself in the moment, right? You only get one shot. Mom spaghetti, all this type of stuff, right? You need to live every day 
important. But I love this. And this is the stuff that those of us who are in faith or maybe outside of faith looking in struggle with. Because you're like, I get that, right? I need to make the most of every opportunity. God has only given me so many days. Footprints in the stands, whatever you do, right? Like, I need to live this out now. But then you're like, because the days are evil? Like, the days are so naughty. Like, what's that about? Understand that what he's talking about is this concept of sin, friends. You know, we live in a fallen world. It's not that we have this original sin on Adam strapped to our back that we're always fleeing, but it's the idea that we live in a fallen world. Why do horrible things happen in this world? Because we all are sinners. We're, we're all at stake. This is the problem when it comes to faith. Our desire to point out sin in others before grappling with our own and actually truly grappling with this, the recognition that is no matter how close I am to Jesus, every day I sin. I do bad things. I dishonor God. The reason we don't like to think about that is like, what? So I'm just trying to maneuver through the sinny world, you know? It's a sinful world. I have to watch out. Evil days. I think we need to view the metaphor a little differently. And the one that I really like is this concept of growth in places where it cannot exist. The thing that still, as a homeowner, this is still the thing that just you know, I, I'm always, I'm never amazed by this. I have to stop and get to the deeper point because I just get pissed when I'm like, you know, I, I've pulled weeds all over the places, you know, in my, in my driveway and stuff because there's these little cracks that happen. And sure enough, I'll pull a weed, a little root growing up. And then I come back a couple weeks later and it's there. And I had yet this year to get any good weed killer because that would have solved it all. So I see these little shoots coming up right here. But at some point, you, you know, uh, I've been watching too much of Matt Damon and The Martian. You know, I'm starting to appreciate this maybe a little more. I'm just like, well, just Steve, view your driveway like Mars and you'll be better. But it's this idea that life can spring up in places where it didn't exist. And that is what light can spring up in places where none exists. And friends, the biggest problem that we have in the world today is that many of us believers aren't trying to sprout up in places where darkness prevails and just truly living in the light. And this is what Paul is bidding you and I to do. This is what he's saying God is asking of us. Don't be foolish, but understand what God is. How do you know what the Lord's will is? That's the $50,000 question that if I could charge for that as a pastor, that I get asked over and over and over and over again, what's God's will for my life? Like, if I could make money on that stuff, I would be banging, right? Like, it'd be sweet. But the problem is, what is God's will? Friends, it's really simple. Paul deals with it at the beginning. What are we supposed to do? Walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love. And you'll be doing that. So as we look through this, you know, there's the, the questions we dealt with. And I think this is what we see in this text here, we figure out who is God. Who is God? God is love. God is love to the extent that he sent his best to earth to die for us, even though we didn't deserve it. What does God ask from us? To emulate him, to be like him, to live in love ourselves. So then what is the block for you and I to move from where we are to where God wants us to be? I think it's this question that is a question that many of us ask then. What is fair? And I don't know if you see that connected, but I will be honest with you as I think this is what connects these two and makes it difficult for you and I to live in this way. Because we're less obsessed with what God is doing and how we need to react in that than what is truly fair. 
So maybe we hang in on this idea, okay, I know who God is, God's the creator of the universe. He wants me to love and reside in him. But what's fair is that if I'm doing it right and these other people aren't doing it that exact way, that they should pay the price for it. So my obsession goes from doing what God wants from me, more so in what they're not doing and how this is resolved. You and I, friends, are obsessed with fairness, right? And that's what's interesting in this political season. I would just challenge you to do your Google search of both Trump, Hillary, and fair and see what happens. And you'll probably just be just numb for the rest of the week, right? Because all this thing in the election, you just hear it over, but people talking about fair. But you understand that fair as a concept is so abstract, we can't even understand it. Because in your life, what's the number one determiner of what is fair? Number one determiner is you and how you do fair. And friends, as much as I want to be objective, when it comes to issues of fairness, I'm judging it all within how it affects Steve. That's fair. Screw you. It's about me. And you might be like, well, that's fierce. No, that's, that's how we do it, friends. We are obsessed with fairness. And let me tell you, as we look through it scripturally, it just doesn't write out. Because there's two aspects of God. God is love, right? I mean, God is love. That oversees all this. But there's two different aspects that God has. Our God is a God of justice. It's something that we want to eject. But understand that we need to, if you're a follower of Jesus, no matter how you feel, you need to embrace the idea that our God is a God of justice. He can actually determine what's fair. He has the ability to do that. He's God. You're not. Right? But that justice is defined through grace. Do you understand this? We understand justice because, or we understand grace because of justice. And that, friends, is the key. Our problem is that we worry about them individually, right? I love grace when it's about me. I want justice for everybody else. Scriptures testify that the, this is who God is, but this is what's even more beautiful about that. Venn diagram this stuff, right? And it wasn't perfect. But Venn diagram? Venn diagram. The reality is is that God's justice and God's grace intersect at the cross. Do you understand that? That's what it is. So when we talk about concepts of sin, sin is real. Sin exists. But for those of us who believe in Jesus, sin doesn't become the issue because where grace has met justice, justice was served in the most unjust way that Jesus bore our sin on the cross for us. But that is who God is. And embracing that is what he's called us to be. It might not answer your questions of fairness, but can I be honest with you? Just, just jettison that all together. Stop worrying about what's fair. Just put your whole life in trust of the God who walks in the way of love. I love this too. So this is my like last jab at stuff because we've been talking from a book in the New Testament about Paul. We talk about Jesus in the New Testament and that's why some of us are like, that's why I like the New Testament because it speaks to this. In the Old Testament, God was just pissed and he just had a bad morning and let's just ignore that altogether. But friends, this same principle existed long before Jesus came. It's ingrained in the DNA of who God is. God has always been the God of love asking us to walk in his way. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. We read, oh, praise the greatness of our God. He's the rock. His works are perfect and all of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong and upright and just is he. How can you and I deal with life in a dark world? How can we embrace a city where darkness prevails? How do we maneuver and live because those evil days are trying to get us? 
Because our God, friends, is a rock. What's a rock? What's a rock? (laughs) Stone. But this concept of rock is something that's firm, that's grounded, that's centered, that is immovable, immovable, that doesn't change. That's your God. That's our God. And even though he's this rock, he said, you know what? I have my justice, but I'm going to give grace to my children. And he came down to earth and he lived life perfectly and he died for you and me so that we could truly be free. And that transcends every other concept of Christianity that other people will try to prevail. Our God is a God of love. And despite our sin, he forgives it through Christ Jesus. The final aspect of worship that speaks to that, and this is what we do every week, and this is a part of the the tradition and practice of our churches, is we take communion any week. Every week we take communion. It's like us and the Catholics. That's the one thing we share. And some of you maybe have church backgrounds that are different or or wrong, if you will. Um, You know, I'm joking. Not really. Uh, No, (laughs) I am joking. Not really. No. One of the reasons that, you know, we don't come down to that scripturally, but you know one of the reasons that I love taking communion every week? Because whatever happens my week, you know what my biggest struggle is? Is remembering all this stuff that we've talked about, right? I'm sure I probably opened up no, you know, very little new vision for anything in the world. You're like, okay, we knew all that. Way to waste 30 minutes of our life, right? You know why I had to waste 30 minutes of your life to get through all this stuff? It's because you aren't always living it out. You know why I have to preach this to myself? Because I'm not always living in this out, right? I need to understand the way of the universe, which is the one that God has loved. And that is exemplified for our family every week as we take communion. Because when we're here, it comes always down to this moment of the cross, the most important moment in human history, where God left heaven and came down and died for us. So we invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, um, we, we invite you to commune with us. And we do it really simple right here. We have some trays up here. It's not actual wine. So I know sometimes we have people that um, have issues with alcohol. This, this is not alcohol. This is just grape juice. Um, this is bread. This is an unleavened bread, you know, that we partake. We, we eat and drink this in a time to remember the cross. That's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. How, in, how are you and I going to live lives of love? We do it best, friends, when we're remembering the cross. And hopefully this will be a moment of your week that centers you and just remembers, that that allows you to remember as you move on from here that we, friends, truly serve a God of love. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to pass out the trays, and we're going to send them road to row. It's never perfect. That's why I like it. It's always a little awkward when you're like, where do I hand a tray here or there? Friends, that's what living in a family and community is. That's truly mosaic, right? For us to come forward and have these moments of awkwardness as family. Friends, that's diversity, but that's what we have in Jesus is all this stuff uniting into a beautiful picture. And for us, that picture is centered within the cross of Christ. I'm going to pray. We'll pass around the trays and communion. Use the next few minutes to remember Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message from your servant Paul. And even here as thousands of years later, as we, your followers, try to uh, just take all this out and try to make sense of it, in an ever-changing world, Father, it just leaves a lot of confusion. And there's a lot of a divisiveness that happens all because of people wanting to do what's best 
for your son. And I would just ask for us to be forgiven of that. Because some places I've, I've, I've added to that. Sometimes us here today, we have added to the divisiveness between us and other believers. We ask for that forgiveness. Because we know, Father, that that's not your ideal. What your ideal is, is for us to walk in the way of love as you walk into. That's a tall order, God. So please bless us and guide us in those ends. Help us to see where we are not living up to this ideal of imitating and mirroring you. And in all this, God, what we do right now is we just give thanks to you for the cross. We deserve justice. But you don't deliver that out to us. No, you took it upon yourself. All of our sin, you took it upon yourself as you hung on the cross. And that is forgiven. We don't understand it. We do appreciate it and we love you. And that's why we remember you as we commune together. Help us to remember your cross, God. In Jesus' name, amen.